A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, listeners. It's Tiffany O'Callaghan, U.S. editor for New Scientist. I wanted to tell you about our upcoming event on the 28th of February at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's our first North American evening online event, and it's all about the science of a healthier and longer life. Our health reporter, Grace Wade, will be joined by evolutionary anthropologist Herman Ponser and gastroenterologist Shilpa Ravella. Go to newscientist.com health3 to register for free. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarche. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by new scientist journalists Graham Lawton, Jeremy Sue, and Alexandra Thompson, and by environment reporter Daniel Capuro from the iPaper. Welcome all. Hi. Hey, everyone. Coming up on the show this week, we're going to find out the results of a survey to find in which country people are most in love. So if you're American or German or Australian in particular, you'll want to know where your country comes in the list there. Uh, We've also got a fascinating story about period cravings, which is something I didn't know anything about. Uh, That's the food cravings women get before their period. I'm speechless, Rowan. <laughs> um, we'll also be hearing about the first study into the evolutionary function of head hair in humans. And we'll be discussing the question of UFOs over North America and asking why the US Air Force is suddenly shooting so many down. But first, we're going to start with rivers. If you're in the UK, you will almost certainly have heard about the terrible plight of our rivers or seen the state of them for yourself. No rivers in England, Wales or Northern Ireland are considered to be in high ecological health and only 14% of England's rivers are classed as being in good health overall. It's an absolute scandal and that's why New Scientist has joined forces with the iNewspaper to draw attention to it and do something about it, launching our Save Britain's Rivers campaign. So to talk about this, we're joined by New Scientist Chief Features Writer Graham Lawton and Eyes Environment Correspondent Daniel Capuro. Graham, can you sort of introduce us to the problem? Yeah, I mean, UK's rivers are really important to people and wildlife, disproportionately important considering how small an area they cover on the land. I mean, they provide all sorts of ecosystem services to to humans. These are things that nature gives us for free. So obviously water, flood defences, waste disposal, but other things like carbon sequestration, hydroelectricity. They're a nursery for commercially important fish species. And then last but not least, leisure and recreation, angling, swimming, kayaking, walking by rivers, really important to people. And obviously, biodiversity. The UK's rivers cover 3% of the land, but they've got 10% of biodiversity. We don't have a lot of biodiversity left, so that's really critically important. And that's actually about on par with the rest of the world. You know, a small percentage of land, a large proportion of biodiversity. But as you said, they're not in good shape. I am... 
I'm in Cornwall at the moment, actually right next to the River Fowl, which turns out to be one of the most sewage polluted rivers in England. The quantity of sewage that goes into there every year, mainly through storm overflows, is really quite shocking. And is I it looking in bad shape, Graham, the river? Well, that's one thing you can't tell. It's really right. hard to tell. It looks amazing. It looks like a beautiful, pristine river. But, you know, beneath the surface, there's this sort of dirty secret floating <laughs> around. And I think we'll find that of a lot of the rivers that we visit over the next few months. One thing I was really struck by in the piece that you wrote for us this week is I think about rivers a lot in terms of wildlife and biodiversity and also they're nice to walk along. Also, we thoroughly depend on them for drinking water. We over-extract them. They're really important for all, all kinds of other things, floodplain management, hydropower. So the rumbling sort of complaints about what's been going on with the UK's rivers, it's not just an aesthetic thing. It's actually core to so many sort of aspects of, of society and how we use these rivers. Yeah, I mean, the UK is one of the few countries to actually value its natural capital, which is kind of nature, which provides us with, with services. And rivers give us huge amounts of important services. And one of the, I think one of the key things is that um, they save the NHS £870 million a year in mental health services. Simply wow. being by the river, being in and around rivers is really good for people's mental health. Well, I hadn't heard a, a, a price tag put on it before like that. Yeah. And um, Daniel, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Um, can you tell us about some of the issues you've been reporting on? Yeah. So, you know, echoing what uh, Graham was saying, it is it is a dirty, smelly problem, but one that's very hard a lot of the time to really know what's going on. You know, particularly we've been looking at in the sort of first week of the campaign, how much do we actually know? How much is actually going on? Who even knows what's happening? As we mentioned, you know, the, the main issue, or at least the headline issue, is this thing of storm overflows. So uh, the sewage networks in the UK, which, depending where you live, can date back to the Victorian period, which is certainly the case in London, but a lot of it dates back to early 20th century, uh, late 19th century. They rely on what's known as combined storm overflows. So rainwater, uh, surface water runoff, anything that goes down, you know, the big sort of metal drain grates that you see in the street, that will end up in our sewer system. And they're treated together, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because, you know, uh, surface runoff is full of lots of nasty things that, that come off our cars and similar. But what happens is that when, in theory, when you have lots of rainfall, the sewage systems, the sewage treatment works can't cope. And to stop them backing up, flooding houses and streets and things with sewage, they discharge some of this uh, raw sewage or partially treated sewage into rivers. Depending on which measures you look at, and, and the data is very much incomplete on this, I think the most recent year is 2021, there were nearly half a million discharges, um, which when you add up all the hours is sort of several several hundred years, I think, of, of discharges is really you know terrible stuff. There's so many unknowns, and one of the unknowns which we're looking at this week is, so water companies have permits to do this. They have environmental permits, which have been around since the 80s, which recognise that the treatment works are not necessarily set up to to process as much water as they should, as much sewage as they should. But it turns out that there's not really monitors installed to check that they're doing this. So you have the case of sewage treatment works where the sticker value on them, if, if you like, says that they will process so much sewage, so much, um, so much wastewater. But uh, the water companies who self, self-check this stuff and report it to the Environment Agency basically just take that at face value. And there's no actual monitors measuring if that's the case. And so it turns out when you use sort of big data, you you look at the weather forecasts and whether it's actually rained or not, it turns out that quite a few of these supposedly legal spills uh, have been happening illegally because the, the sewage treatment works have not been 
reaching their required sort of max threshold before before churning out this sewage. So, you know, there's this question of how much of it is legal and, and how much of it is not legal. But then, of course, you know, lots of people, lots of listeners will probably be thinking, well, how on earth is, is any of it legal? And that comes back to this issue that we just have a, a pretty decrepit ancient uh, sewage system that is not fit for the population size that we have. And then, you know, I was looking at further issues. So I had a story come out uh, this week and, and I'm working on another one to do with all the chemicals that are in that are in our rivers. You know, a lot of the focus obviously is on on sewage because it's so it just it seems so shocking. You know, you're walking along and suddenly your river's turned green and is full of poo, you know, to not put too fine a point on it. But actually, there's a bunch of stuff that comes through sewage treatment works that they're not designed to take out and they never were and no one ever expected them to. You know, there's studies that show that our rivers are full of antidepressants, ibuprofen, paracetamol, illicit drugs, full of um, contraceptive pill, um, you know, the active ingredients of contraceptive pills. And it's really difficult to know what this does to invertebrates, to fish, to wildlife in these rivers. But but there is some evidence that it's, it's not good. It interferes with their breeding, interferes with their ability to catch prey, to feed. And that sort of then, you know, ripples out through the, through the ecosystem because, uh, you know, birds, fish, whatever they eat, they eat this wildlife. So even looking ahead, this is stuff that, you know, sewage treatment works probably need to be upgraded to, to strip out these things and that stuff's just not there it's not even required by law you know no one's blaming the water companies no one's ever told them they have to strip this stuff out yeah i can speak a bit to the lack of data or the sort of dearth of data that's going on just from reporting around the river foul there are 107 of these emergency storm outlets going into that river only 67 of them are monitored so that they're the ones that we know when they're on or off and that but that's all they know about them are they on or are they off they don't record how much sewage is going into the river so the foul is actually has more incidents of sewage pollution than any other river, but we don't know how much sewage is going in there, which just seems to be kind of the most important bit of data, and it's just completely missing. So that's what we're going to be sort of getting quite deep into over the next year is what do we know? What can we tell? Why isn't the legislation working as it is? And also, you know, we've, we've talked about sewage and chemical pollution, but there's so many other challenges, aren't there? There's um, pollution from agriculture, there's canalisation. We're going to be looking at all of those challenges that are facing British rivers at the moment. Graham, can you just um, sum up sort of what are the main goals of the campaign? Yeah, we've got three real goals. First of all, just to find out what's happening to the UK rivers and why, as you said. Uh, Second, really, to bring the plight of the UK's rivers to public attention. I think that's already happening, but I think we want to ramp that up. And third, we want to draw up a a manifesto for rivers, a kind of blueprint for how they can be looked at better. That's great. Well, thank you both. And um, throughout the following year, we're going to have features, articles, investigations, videos, and of course, podcasts. So listen out for some more. Now, I feel the need that for the X-Files theme to, to be playing in the background, but we're not allowed. Um, but, but Jeremy, why are US fighter jets suddenly blowing UFOs up out of the sky over North America? Yeah, so uh, this really all began with the balloon that first crossed into US airspace over Alaska on the 28th of January. And uh, we're not talking about a small party balloon. So picture <laughs> sort of a large white balloon that's carrying a payload beneath it that's the size of like several buses or basically a small passenger jet. So this balloon, after crossing over Alaska, it was tracked crossing Canada and then re-entered U.S. airspace over Idaho. And then it proceeded on its merry way to fly over some potentially sensitive sites, such as some 
U.S. military missile silos and an Air Force base in Montana. Eventually, it was finally shot down by a U.S. fighter jet on the 4th of February off the coast of South Carolina. Once uh, U.S. officials had decided there was no risk to the public from falling debris. And all along this way, it basically flew at an altitude of about 18,000 meters or 60,000 feet. Wow, so it's high, isn't it? Really high. For sure. It's definitely up there in the stratosphere. Yeah. And for now, the U.S. is it's still collecting and analyzing the wreckage, uh, much of it, which pretty much fell into the sea. But the U.S. government has basically confident enough at this point to say that the balloon was part of what they describe as a high-altitude surveillance program by the People's Republic of China, which spanned several continents. Now, Chinese government officials have denied this and said it was a balloon intended for weather research that kind of just went astray, like hmm. got blown off course. <laughs> it just happened to go over missile silos and the Air Force base, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I think one of the things that's kind of grabbed attention is that why would you use balloons when we have such sophisticated spy satellites and other technologies? So you can think of them as basically kind of like cheaper and more disposable satellites that can spend longer periods of time peeking down at a particular spot. Whereas satellites, many of them will often be zipping overhead, you know, every 90 minutes to maybe even like every day. And so they have less time usually over target. Another advantage for balloons is they're actually surprisingly hard to detect and take down. And you might not think that because you think, well, I can just pop this party balloon. But mm -hmm. uh, one thing is these balloons, they just don't appear well on radar because they're actually relatively small. Uh, they also, because they are flying so high at such high altitudes, that actually really pushes the limits of military surface to air missiles and even fighter jets. And then last but last, not least, um, if you think about taking out one balloon with a Sidewinder missile, which costs over 400,000 US dollars, that's not necessarily something you want to keep doing in the long run. Yeah, and they actually missed, didn't they, with the first one? So they had to use a second. So that's it's getting on for a million dollars it costs just to take down that one balloon. So we've got quite an okay understanding then of what this balloon probably was from China. Um, but what about these three other follow-on incidents with fighter jets shooting down unidentified flying objects that have happened since? Right, so here's where it goes from kind of like a spy versus spy game to something that maybe gets a little stranger. As a result of that initial balloon incident, uh, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, which is also known as NORAD, basically decided to change their radar system so that they can start detecting you know, these small, slower moving objects like balloons. And uh, not too surprisingly, once they did that, they started detecting a lot more objects. And so over the span of several days between the 10th of February and the 12th of February, uh, NORAD detected several additional flying objects that were all intercepted and shot down by U.S. fighter jets. What do we think they are other than just labeling them UFOs, which everyone is very sort of hesitant to do seriously? I think there was definitely a lot of uncertainty at first. Um, the commander of NORAD initially said he hadn't ruled anything out when he was directly asked about the possibility of aliens. <laughs> but that being said, the White House was very quick to soon afterward come out and say, there was basically no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. However, that being said, you know, the Pentagon has been tracking what it describes as unidentified aerial phenomena, which, you know, I think everyone else calls UFOs. Um, <laughs> so basically, it's been tracking incidents where US military personnel, you know, reported seeing or something related to that. And uh, the US Office of the Director of National Intelligence had actually looked into some of these, and they found that balloons actually accounted for 
163 of 366 phenomena that were reported in over a certain period. And so that was by far the most common explanation. It's basically a lot, you know, I guess there's, there's a lot of balloons out there. We just wanted to take a quick break to tell you that there are a few places left on the New Scientist Discovery Tour, Marine Ecosystems of the Azores, departing on the 13th of May. On this trip, you'll explore the delights of this Portuguese mid-Atlantic archipelago with marine biologists, you'll study whales and dolphins, and you'll visit basalt vineyards and volcanic lagoons. To find out more and to book your ticket, visit newscientist.com tours, or click the link in our show notes. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With Valentine's Day just gone, we thought it would be fitting to discuss a new study that has tried to find out where in the world people are most in love. Rowan spoke to our Australia reporter, Alice Klein. Hi, Alice. So this is the biggest ever study to measure love levels around the world. Now, how did they go about measuring that? Yeah, so this was a really massive undertaking that involved a team of 70 researchers in 45 countries. Uh, So the author list on the paper is enormous. And they asked more than 9,000 adults who were in committed relationships. So that meant either dating, engaged or married to fill out a questionnaire. They were given 45 statements like just seeing my partner excites me or I share deeply personal information about myself with my partner. Another one was I have confidence in the stability of my relationship with my partner. And then they were asked how much they agreed with each one of these 45 statements on a scale of 1 to 10. And then finally their answers were averaged to give their average love score. Average love score. Okay, it doesn't sound a very romantic way of measuring love, does it? But how else (laughs) you can do it, I suppose. Um, But I guess the big question is, what are these average love scores like? And, you know, what are the differences between countries? Well, the country where people seem to be most in love, at least according to this study, which probably I wouldn't have expected, was Hungary. Mm. And then um, the other ones that made the top five were Malaysia, Portugal, the US and Italy. The US. Yeah, that's that slightly surprises me that it's one of the most loved up countries in the world. Yeah. Perhaps I'm doing our American listeners a disservice there. <laughs> um, Italy. Yeah, I, that's not surprising. I've just come back from Venice. Uh, it's very beautiful and romantic. And, and Italian, it's traditionally the language of love, isn't it? Um, yes, so, but that yeah. one didn't surprise me. Yeah. But what about the UK and Australia? Who Who comes out top? Well, here in Australia, we came in at ninth place, which I think is pretty respectable. Yeah. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, the UK wasn't actually included in this study, so we can only really speculate about where you would sit. (laughs) Well, we can speculate that we would be at the top, can't we? (laughs) Um, What about the countries where people were least in love? So the countries that sat at the bottom of this love ladder were Germany, Austria, Jordan, South Korea, Uganda and Pakistan. 
Wow, that's quite a mixture, isn't it? Mm. Um, well, poor old German-speaking countries don't do well, do they? <laughs> well, are there any common features amongst uh, you know the most loved-up countries and the, uh, and the least ones that you, you know they they're using to explain these these clusterings? Yeah, so the researchers that did this study, they they did find some general trends. For example, they found that countries that scored higher on what's known as the Human Development Index, which mm. takes into account things like life expectancy, length of schooling, living standards, that sort of thing, they were more likely to sit higher up the love letter. And I guess the reason for that might be that, you know, if you're in good health and you have enough money to eat and things like that, then you might have more of an opportunity to really engage with your partner and, you know, stoke the passion. <laughs> yeah. um, and then another factor that actually ties into this is that countries with higher gender equality also seem to have higher love scores. And mm. that might be because women in these countries typically have greater choice in who they pair up with. Right. But I should note that these are just general trends. They're not hard and fast rules. For example, if you think of Germany, they score highly in terms of this human development index and gender equality, but Germany's near the bottom for love scores. Mm. Uh, so it's unclear why that is, but I have to say coming from a, a German family myself, I wouldn't say we're really known for Romeo and Juliet style hot-blooded <laughs> displays of passion. Um, so maybe it's just a cultural thing. I mean, I, I was also thinking about whether you could measure love more in some more objective way in a like a brain scanner or using hormones but I guess it's just it is a completely subjective it's so subjective that's true um, yeah it's you know, about how people's own experiences yeah so how reliable is it when you're just asking questions like this yeah I mean I guess to do a, a brain scan study or, or measure hormones for over 9,000 people in 45 <laughs> countries <laughs> might be a bit of bit of an yeah. undertaking um and I mean this is the biggest study ever on this subject so far mm. but even though they did include over 9,000 people the number of people actually in each country ranged from just 72 to 827 and they were mostly people living in cities with a relatively high level of education so the findings probably aren't perfectly representative but the researchers are hoping to do larger studies in the future because we know that love is this universal emotion across cultures so it's, it's just really interesting to explore how we experience it in different ways. Now, did you know that hair type has previously been studied by researchers in fields such as cosmetics and forensics, but not by evolutionary biologists? <laughs> no, I did not know that. No, me neither. But this is the first study to do that. And what researchers have found is that tightly coiled curly hair both shields the head from the sun and prevents overheating by minimising insulation. And this finding could explain why curly hair evolved in early humans when our ancestors were all in Africa and why straighter hair then emerged later as some humans moved into cooler areas. Wow. So uh, my immediate thought on this was, why don't chimps have curly hair as their as our closest relatives? But then I thought, okay, they live in the forest, right? Mm. And it's shady and they don't need it. And humans evolved on the savanna out in the sun more, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And it's been suggested before that humans largely lost their body hair, but retained head hair in order to prevent our heads from overheating in the sun. But now Tina Lisisi at Penn State University has tested if the type of hair on a person's head also might make a difference. Okay, so what did they do? 
Yeah, it's quite funny, this experiment. They put three different wigs on something called a thermal mannequin. Um, so, so one wig was straight, one had moderate curls, and one had tight curls. And what the team found was that the hair's type made a really big difference to how much heat the head of the mannequin gained when it was sort of exposed to simulated sunshine and, and quite high temperatures. And basically, the head with the tightly curled wig gained less than a tenth as much heat as the control that had no wig at all. I can't get over thermal mannequin. It just sounds weird, doesn't it? Like <laughs> I'm mannequin. imagining something in, you know, like in a shop with, with clothes on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, the tightly curled hair was really good at protecting the head. What about straight hair? Yeah, so all the hair was good. Uh, straight mm. hair still protected the head, just not as much as the tight curls. So the head with a, well, the mannequin head with a straight wig gained less than half as much heat as the control bald mannequin head. <laughs> well, so why doesn't everyone have Afro curls? Because it's got all these advantages. So the researchers suggest that as people spread out of Africa, the selection pressure, uh, you know, the, the evolutionary uh, advantage of having tightly cored hair would have been lost or, or relaxed. So that hmm. would then allow variations to emerge from generation to generation by random chance. And that's probably why we don't all have tightly curled hair today. Right. It's odd, isn't it, that, you know, loads of work has been done looking at skin colour, I suppose, quite obviously, and also the selective advantage of, of having dark skin but not at hair type. Yeah, I find this really interesting. And, and to speak to that, I'll quote you what Tina Lissisi told our reporter, Michael LePage. She said, when it comes to anthropology, it has this history that's tightly woven with colonialism and racism. What kind of Victorian gentleman would have thought that a trait he did not possess could be critical to human evolution? <laughs> Brilliant. Now let's talk about food cravings and in particular period cravings. And these are the kind of food cravings that women get before their period. Now I have to, you know, put my hands up here. You know, I knew that women get cravings or I thought, I knew that, <laughs> you know, but I hadn't, connect, hadn't connected it to the time of the month. So it is a real thing, is it? Um, Alexandra, you, you're, you're doing a story on this. Well, it, that's something I know all too well. And I think uh, <laughs> chocolate's the, the, the classic, but actually anything sweet mm -hmm. or salty, not particularly healthy. And now the new research suggests that it's linked to inflammation. So inflammation, can you sort of, what is that? Is, are we talking about changes in the immune system that have been brought on by, you know, hormonal changes? Well, we don't entirely know. All we know is that there's different levels of inflammatory markers in the blood of women who experience these cravings. So that could be related to differing levels of hormones throughout the menstrual cycle or potentially even stress. So I have to say, I think when I reach for the chocolate, I'm probably using it as an excuse rather than mm -hmm. it being a biological craving. So I'm, I'm really interested to know what, what did the study actually do? How did, how did it find this? So it was a group of researchers in the US and they looked at 259 women aged 14 to 44 over two menstrual cycles. And these women self-reported via a questionnaire whether they were having any cravings and the severity of those cravings. And they also provided eight blood samples over these two cycles. And more than half of the women, 57%, said they had moderate to severe cravings for sugary or salty foods. And that was most pronounced in the week or two before their period. And when they looked at the blood samples, they found that there was a range of inflammatory markers that were elevated in the blood of women with sweet cravings and different markers in those with salty cravings. And do we know why there might be cravings? Because, 
you know, with pregnancy cravings, isn't it supposed to be that the body is craving like a particular mineral or something that it needs and it makes the woman seek it out? And I wondered if if that's what's going on with these period cravings. Well, possibly, although I'd imagine that what they need is iron and then we should all be craving a delicious steamed kale, which isn't the (laughs) case. So um, I don't think we really know a whole lot about why we have these cravings, to be honest, no. Okay. And Alex, while you're here, do tell us about your story on the vaginal ecosystem, because basically what a story. I know, I loved writing that. So the basis of it was there were five women who received a vaginal microbiome transplant for recurrent bacterial vaginosis or BV. And I should probably even explain what that is because this is a condition that affects one in three women at some point in their life. And very few people know what what it is. Even experts in the field aren't entirely clear on what causes it. So it's characterised by this watery discharge that has a fishy smell and in some women with these symptoms there are elevated levels of particular bacterial species but in some women they can have those same elevations and no symptoms at all so we think it's when the bacterial microbiome gets out of sync a little bit but these five women were having recurrent symptoms and antibiotics weren't effective in the long term so they received a dose of vaginal fluid from women without BV And four out of five of them are in remission years later. So this opens up so many questions about, you know, what is a healthy vaginal microbiome? What is an optimal one? Could we have super donors one day? Yeah, it's an amazing story. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. We'll also put links to the first articles from our Save Britain's Rivers campaign. So you can find out more about that. That's all for this week. Thanks to all our guests and thanks to you for listening. Do go ahead and subscribe and do get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and say hello. Give us any feedback you want. And also, I must say, by the way, we've been shortlisted for Best Science Podcast in the Publisher Podcast Awards 2023. So thank you very much for that. And fingers crossed. And we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 